0: Well, good morning. My name is John Crawford. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to be with you all as we continue in our series in John, looking at John chapter 5 this morning. Well, if I had to guess what your favorite thing is, it's probably not jury duty. Those two words, jury duty, tend to make many people cringe. And about 12 years ago, I got summoned for jury duty, the thing that everybody loves, and as I showed up at the court, it just so happened that I won the lottery, and my group number was called to go into the courtroom, which meant I got to spend the day there, and it actually ended up being a a cool experience because I had never been in a courtroom before. And so this was my first time in a courtroom, and upon entry, um, I took in my surroundings. I was observant, seeing everything in the courtroom, and I was like, wow, this is really kind of interesting. And I got to go into the jury box, which is usually on the side of the court, and sit in the jury box where the jurors were. And in the front uh, was the judge, and the judge was sitting there, and then about midway through, you have the prosecution and the defense. And then in the back of the courtroom, there's an area called the gallery. This is the place where spectators can come and they can sit to observe the trial. And this imagery of the courtroom is important for us this morning as we continue in John chapter 5 because we are entering a courtroom scene this morning. And we're entering a courtroom scene as spectators sitting in the gallery of the courtroom to watch Jesus on trial. So the title for the sermon this morning is Jesus on Trial. Would you pray with me before we dive in? Jesus, thank you that we get to gather as your people this morning. Thank you that you are the God who speaks and I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Spirit of God, that your words would be my words, that you would stand in my body, and Lord, that you would speak in powerful and prophetic ways this morning, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us to follow you faithfully, and Lord, that you would help us to celebrate the beauty of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. If you'll follow along, we'll start in verse 30. This is uh, Jesus' words here. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but of the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish are the very works that I am doing, and they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me it's the first thing we see this morning is that Jesus says can I get a witness can I get a witness as Jesus calls his witnesses to testify on his behalf in the courtroom we're in the courtroom Jesus is on trial but why is Jesus on trial here If you remember last week, Josh preached about the paralytic man for 38 years who who laid paralyzed by the pool and Jesus comes to him and he heals him and he heals him on the Sabbath. And so these Jewish religious leaders are furious now because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. They think that he's worked on the Sabbath and that he's clearly a lawbreaker. But even more than that, Jesus claims to be equal with God. And so these religious leaders are losing their mind. They're furious and they are seeking blood. In verse 18, it even says that they're seeking to kill Jesus because of this. And so what they're saying, these religious leaders say, Jesus, we need proof. Where is the proof for these works that you're doing? Where is the proof for the claims that you're making? We need evidence to support these claims. This isn't just a court case, this is a capital case, because they're out for blood. Jesus has to justify himself, and he knows that in the law, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse six, and 19, verse 15, there is very specific grounds for testimony in the courts of law. And in Deuteronomy, it says that you need two or more witnesses to testify in order for your testimony to be valid, which means that Jesus' solo witness would not, and his solo testimony would not be seen as valid. And Jesus knows this because he knows the law. And so he says, okay, I, I've got witnesses. You can bring them up to the stand. Jesus says, can I get a witness? It's almost as if he says, all right, you religious leaders, you want my witnesses. They'll take the stand. They will testify, and these are my witnesses. It's the Holy Spirit in verse 32. It's John the Baptist here in verse 33. It's the works that Jesus is doing in verse 36. It's the Father himself in verse 37, and it's the scriptures that bear witness in verse 39. Mic drop moment for Jesus. Jesus. These are pretty good witnesses, if you ask me, especially when you're talking to religious leaders. But this is also in addition to the witness of this man. These religious leaders have seen that a paralytic man for 38 years has been healed. And even this witness of this man is not enough. They want proof. Many of us are like the religious leaders. We want proof we put Jesus on trial, and many of us are saying, Jesus, where's the proof? Where's the proof for your truth? Where's the proof for the reliability of Jesus? Where's the proof of the goodness of Jesus? Where's the proof of the love of Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you've got questions about Jesus, you're wondering, Jesus, where's the proof? I need proof before I put my trust in you. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a period of time and you still have questions and you're wondering, Jesus, where, where is the proof? See, Jesus gives them the witnesses of John the Baptist, of the Holy Spirit, of his works, of the Father, and of scriptures. But we also have other witnesses because we are 2,000 years later in human history and in the same way that Jesus gave them John the Baptist, Jesus has given us the many other faithful followers of Jesus, men and women who have gone before us, whose shoulders we stand upon, who were willing to be killed for their faith that the early church fathers and mothers, those who had seen Jesus were so convinced that that Jesus was true, that this was real, that the resurrection happened, that these people were willing to be tortured, beheaded, fed to lions in the Colosseum because they were so convinced that the resurrection had happened, that it changed the world. Just as Jesus gave them John the Baptist, he also gave them his works. And in the same way, he's given us his works. It's the things that we've seen Jesus do. Many of us have seen Jesus heal people. We've seen people who were dead in their sins come to saving faith and new life in Jesus. And it's a miracle that there's a reason why Christianity has spread like wildfire from the resurrection of Jesus until now. It's the largest religion in the world it's a global religion because people have encountered and seen the very works of the resurrected Jesus but in the same way that he gave them the witness of the Holy Spirit and the Father he's given us the witness of the Spirit and of the Father that many of us have experienced the very presence of God And many other people have experienced the presence of God. And when you experience and encounter the presence of God, it transforms and it transforms people's lives. It changes lives. And when you ask, where's the proof? You see that the very presence of God that people have encountered changes lives. And so we have evidence if we look around at the lives of other people. But more than that, Jesus has also given them the witness of the scriptures, and we have the very witness of scriptures here in front of us today. And there's a reason why God's Word has been the number one selling book, the Bible is the number one selling book in all of history, that this is the witness to who God is, to what Jesus has done, that the Bible is about Jesus. We have the same witnesses that Jesus lists out here, but we have far more evidence than that because of history, that we can see the ways that Jesus has shown up, how he has acted in power in the history of the world, and he has changed the course of world history. But even more than that, we all love stories, Every story is an echo. Every good story, every good movie that we love is an echo of this story, the true story of the world in which God has written and Jesus is at the center of. There's evidence to believe in Jesus this morning. But why does Jesus list these witnesses? Why these specific witnesses? He does so because he's talking to Jewish religious leaders and these are all witnesses that these leaders should believe. Not only should they believe, Jesus desires them to believe. He wants them to come to experience life in his name, to experience salvation. And so Jesus says here in in verse 32, he says his first witness, I'm calling my first witness to the stand to testify, he says there is another who bears witness about me. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit specifically, but when Jesus says another, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, we see that Jesus many times refers to another as the Holy Spirit, especially in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. This really gets built out. And so Jesus is saying, there is another. Who bears witness? It's the Holy Spirit. And I know his testimony is true, but I know you, religious leaders, need more proof. And so for your sake, My second witness is John the Baptist here in verse 33. Jesus appeals to John the Baptist's witness because he desires that these leaders would be saved. John was a very big deal. He was a very familiar figure. And Jesus says something profound about John. He says, John was a lamp. See, the interesting thing about lamps is that lamps bear borrowed light. And that's exactly what John's whole ministry was. Is that John was this lamp that guided people to the true light of the Messiah who is Jesus. And here's the thing about John's ministry. John's ministry was very successful. He had many followers, as we've seen earlier in the Gospel of John, that people listened to him, that John's ministry stirred in people an excitement for the coming Messiah, that there was great messianic expectation because of John's ministry. And so Jesus says, here, you religious leaders, you Rejoiced in John's light in his ministry for a period of time, you believed what he said, you followed him. Why then would you not accept my testimony? Being that John's whole ministry pointed to me as the Messiah? Jesus wants his hearers to be saved. Says that in verse 44 is that so that they may be saved. What Jesus is not trying to do here, he's not trying to win an argument. He's not trying to gain their acceptance or approval. He wants them to experience the softening of their hearts that they would know him. The question I have for us this morning, are you trying to win arguments or point people to Jesus? See, I'm not proud of this story, but it happened, so I'm gonna share it with you guys. Uh, I was a young Christian, had recently come to faith, and I was zealous for theology. I was actually taking a a class at Chandler Gilbert Community College at the time. I'm walking out to the parking lot after class and a uh, young Mormon guy comes up to me and he wants to talk about faith and belief and stuff. And so I was like, okay, I'll amuse this guy and let's have a conversation. So I started talking to him, but the conversation wasn't really a conversation. It turned into a debate very quickly But the debate wasn't a debate. It turned into an argument very quickly, which led to almost being in a fight. I almost got taken out by a nice Mormon dude in the parking lot of Chandler Gilbert. And here's what you know. You know you've been a real jerk when you can get a really nice young Mormon guy who's either just getting ready to go on his mission or he's just gotten back from his mission to get up in your face where he's about to pummel you, right? That's when you know you've been a real jerk. Here's the problem, though, and here's why I'm not proud of this story. I didn't give a rip about this guy's salvation. I wanted to prove something. I wanted to prove that I was right. I wanted to prove that I knew the Bible better than him. I want to prove that I could intellectually run circles around him, and there was no fruit that came out of it, only this guy was really mad at me and almost beat me up, and he would have beat me up, and I didn't desire his salvation. I wanted to win an argument, And I remember after, it was later that evening, I had been home and I just felt that the spirit of God convict me of, yes, I knew theology, but I wasn't living the very theology that I knew. That I wasn't being like Jesus. That Jesus clearly even, he doesn't want to win the argument. He's desiring that these Jewish leaders who are putting him on trial, who want to kill him, he's desiring that they would come to saving faith. And so Jesus continues here, and he says, hey, if you don't believe John the Baptist's witness, then I've got another witness that I'm calling, and it's the witness of my works. In verse 36 here, Jesus says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Jesus says, okay, then I'm calling my works to testify, and these are greater than the testimony of John even. In John's gospel, these works are called signs, that these are the signs of the Messiah, that these signs reveal who Jesus is and what he is doing in the world. These works or these signs are given to him by the very Father, and these works testify that Jesus is God, that he and the Father are one. These works are not David Blaine tricks. These are Signs of the coming resurrection. And Jesus shows us through his works, and these works give testimony that he is who he says. You wanted proof of the claims I'm making. My works show that I am doing only what the Father can do. But see, as we watch in the gallery of the courtroom as spectators, we're watching these witnesses testify on behalf of Jesus, But you and I, as followers of Jesus, are also witnesses. We are witnesses to the power and the reality of Jesus and his kingdom because we have experienced his power in our lives. And so, therefore, we are witnesses. The question is, does our witness add credit or discredit the transformative power of Jesus? Do our lives add credit or discredit the transformative power of Jesus? Because in the same way that God used John the Baptist's ministry as a means of salvation to point people to the Messiah, God also uses our witness to validate the very words and works of Jesus. Many people in your life right now are asking, where's the proof for the truth of Jesus? And your witness is the evidence. So as Jesus is on trial here, he quickly realizes that the members of the jury are not in a fit condition to understand the evidence that is being put before them. And so Jesus now takes the stand. Let's see here in verse 37. Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Our second point this morning is that Jesus plays defense. Jesus plays defense as he takes the stand, providing evidence now against his accusers. He begins to provide evidence and indict these religious leaders. And here's what he says. The the problem is that you guys have plenty of reason that you should believe these testimonies of the witnesses thus far, but you are persisting in unbelief. Jesus knows that his prosecution is problematic. That it's not that they can't believe because there's lacking evidence. It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's that they won't believe. That there's a refusal to believe due to the stubbornness and hardened hearts that they have. See, these Jewish leaders are are scholars of the law. They studied scripture. They know scripture. But the goal of knowing scripture is knowing Jesus. And so Jesus says, here is my first witness who is evidence against you now. It's the witness of the Father. And Jesus says, the problem is that you religious leaders are not true Israelites. You think you are Jewish leaders, but you're not a part of true Israel because you haven't heard God. You haven't seen God and you don't have God abiding in you. Jesus is referring to Moses here because Moses is a big deal in Judaism He's one of the most righteous men for Jewish people to to believe. He's one of the most righteous people in history. But more than that, Moses is the one that God chose to be the instrument of the Exodus story where he brought God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And then more than that is God gave the law Oftentimes the Mosaic law, it's called through Moses. And so Moses is a huge deal. And so Jesus now indicts them, referring back to Moses, that they are not true Israelites. And so Jesus says, this is the evidence against you. Moses, the one that you respect so much, he heard God. But you have not paid any attention to his voice because you do not hear me. God's voice In Jesus, but Moses also saw God and Jesus is saying, but you have not seen God because I am the very manifestation of God in the flesh, but yet you reject me. Jesus says, you also do not have God's word abiding in you because I am the very word of God and you have no time for me. Jesus' indictment for them is that the only way that you can hear the voice of the Father is through the life-giving voice of me, the Son. And he continues, though, with his evidence here in verse 39, and he appeals to the Scripture now. Jesus calls upon the Scripture because these leaders studied the Scripture. They knew it. But Jesus says here in verse 39, he says that the problem is that you believe that it's in the scriptures where you can find eternal life. But scripture, just like John the Baptist, always points to Jesus where life is found. It is not scripture that gives us life, but scripture points us to the one that gives life and his name is Jesus. See, if you refuse to come to Jesus like these leaders were refusing, then you are reading scripture the wrong way. It's as if Jesus stands up in the courtroom, in the middle of the courtroom and says, here is my indictment. You religious leaders have the right book, but you are reading it the wrong way. You've been reading this book, yes, but you're reading it the wrong way because you cannot have life in the scriptures. You only have life in me, in whom scripture points to. The problem for these leaders is that they knew everything about the Messiah but yet they didn't know the Messiah himself even though he was standing right in front of them. For us, this morning, Jesus is inviting you to know him. And the way that you get to know Jesus is through his word. And the goal of getting to know scripture is to get to know Jesus. See, the word of God Points to the very word who put on flesh. And oftentimes in the church, when we talk about reading the Bible, it can kind of seem like this duty thing. It's a checklist thing. It's something that we have to drudge through because it's viewed as dry, it's viewed as boring, it's viewed as just a to do list and a duty in order to, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible because I'm a Christian. But see, That's not how Jesus wants to view reading scripture and engaging scripture. Jesus wants us to read his word with expectation, that we open the pages of God's word to expect that he is going to encounter us, that he is going to speak to us. The primary way that God speaks to his people is through his word. And so when we open up the pages of scripture, we get to expect that the very God who created us, who has spoke life into existence, has something to say to us, and when we expect to encounter Jesus through Scripture, it changes the way that we view reading Scripture. Instead of a duty, it becomes a delight. It becomes something that we get excited to do, and this is Jesus' invitation to us, is to encounter him, because the goal of reading Scripture is life with Jesus. But there's two dangers that can happen when we talk about reading the Bible. The first is... It's possible to read the Bible to fill your head with information instead of letting it penetrate your heart. That it's really easy to store a bunch of head knowledge and use the Bible as intellectual food without ever letting it penetrate your heart. I've heard it said that it's a long journey from your head to your heart. And that there's something different that happens when you let God's word captivate your heart. There's another danger though when we read scripture. It's that we can read with the wrong end goal. That many times we can pick up the Bible because we're looking for a good moral lesson. Or we're looking for guidance about a decision in life. Or with our kids where we open the Bible to show them how to behave and this is a list of do's and don'ts. We go to scripture for wisdom. Or maybe we open the Bible, because this crazy year of 2020, everybody's wondering, now, when does the Bible say the world's gonna end? Because it seems like it's gonna end right now. Here's the problem. The Bible is primarily not about all of those things. Can you get wisdom out of scripture? Yes. Does the Bible show us how we can live as God's people to flourish in the world and be a faithful witness? Yes. Can you go to scripture for wisdom and discernment about important decisions? Yes. Can you go to the Bible to find out when the world is going to end? No, don't do that. It doesn't tell you when the world's going to end. But here's the thing. It's a problem if we open God's word with that as an end goal. Because the Bible is not primarily about any of these things. The Bible is one unified story from start to finish. And the Bible is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. And so when we read God's word, we should be reading to encounter Jesus. And his invitation to us this morning is that we would immerse ourselves in his word so that we can immerse ourselves in him. Let's see what else Jesus continues to say to these religious leaders. In verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What an indictment. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. His name is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our last point this morning is that Jesus pulls the switcheroo. Jesus pulls the switcheroo and he's been the defendant, it seems, this whole time, but really he's actually been the prosecutor this entire time. Jesus flips the script, the courtroom shifts. It turns out that he, has, he hasn't been the one on trial. Surprise, it's not Jesus who's on trial, it's everyone else. It's his accusers, these religious leaders are on trial. It's those who are watching and listening that are on trial. Jesus is the one who carries out God's judgment, and he is the prosecutor who builds his case against these religious leaders. And here's what he says. He says that these Jewish leaders now stand accused. Why do they stand accused? Because the very same witnesses who testified to the truth of Jesus are now actually witnesses against these leaders. And also... The prosecution points out that the problem with these leaders is that they receive glory from one another instead of God. They want to impress other people. We are like these leaders. They are like us. We want to be impressive. We want human affirmation. We want to be liked. We think about social media. Social media is low-hanging fruit. It's easy to pick on, everybody picks on it. I don't want to pick on social media, but I do want to talk about it. Because there's a documentary that came out that probably most of us watched on Netflix a few months ago, The Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma came out and it's interesting because it's got everybody's tripping out now about the behind the scenes, how social media started, behind a lot of these social media platforms. People are freaking out. But what I want to talk about is the like button for a minute. Because the like button wasn't an accident. It wasn't just something that social media creators, those that are behind the technology, it wasn't just something they said, oh, we stumbled upon this. No, much time went into it. Much research, much study, much psychology went into this like button of how can we hook people on social media? And they discovered the like button. It's the thing that made social media hook us. It's what makes it addictive because the like button taps into something very important, dopamine. Dopamine's the neurotransmitter released in the brain that plays a role in feeling and experiencing pleasure. Dopamine is released when we do things like eat food that we've been craving. When we experience sexual intimacy, dopamine is released and it contributes to these feelings of pleasure. And that's exactly what the like button does. It taps into dopamine and that's why it's addictive. It's addictive because we want to be liked. So there's been multiple studies that have been done on social media. One of the studies that I read a little while ago was specifically looking at Instagram though. And this study concluded that Instagram creates a compare and despair mentality in people. And the reason why is because on Instagram specifically, as you scroll through life and pictures, you see the best, the brightest, the most beautiful, all of the things that you probably don't have in your life and so you're comparing and then you feel despair. But not only do we compare our lives to other people, we also compare our likes to other people. We look on social media and we look and see who has the most friends, who has the most followers, How many likes did I get on that post? Who has the most likes on their posts? Who has the most views? See, we do this because we want to be liked. Jesus says that here, even in verse 44. He says that these leaders receive glory from one another. They don't seek the glory that comes from God. We're just like these leaders. We want glory from others. But the question is, do we care more about what people like than what God likes? If I'm being honest and transparent with you guys, as a pastor and as a preacher, there are times when I want people to like what I say in a sermon, that I want people to like what I say, but God hasn't called me to that. God has called me to be faithful to his word, that I have to stand and give an account for the ways that I've stewarded his word. I need to be faithful as I preach, but it's an honest wrestle. I have to examine my own heart, and I find myself asking this question. Do I want to communicate what people want to hear in a sermon or what God wants to say in a sermon? Because those are two different sermons. See, the problem with when we desire and elevate human affirmation, it actually prevents us from being the very witnesses that God has called us to be as his people because we end up valuing other people's opinions more than God's opinions. That we care more about what people think than what God thinks, and that changes the way we live, and it compromises our witness as his people. You think about, for us, How many things there are that we do or that we don't do because we want to be liked? How many hard conversations have you avoided? Oh, someone said a lot, thank you, that's good. (laughs) Uh, How many times have you avoided telling people what you really believe? How many times have you overcommitted? How many times have you just said yes because you don't wanna let people down by saying no? Right now, there we go, another one, that's good. Well, there's good news for you because Jesus frees us from the bondage of human affirmation because in the gospel, Jesus says that we are fully loved and fully accepted and we don't need to look for affirmation and glory from other people because we have his affirmation because of Christ. Jesus continues as he closes his prosecution here in verses 45 and 47, and he says that these leaders stand accused not by him, but by Moses. What is Jesus referring to here? He's referring back to scripture, the witness of scripture. Specifically, he says Moses because he's referring to the law. The law was given through Moses, and these Jewish leaders didn't believe Moses because they didn't believe Jesus. That's the indictment here. Jesus is saying, if you actually believed Moses, if you really took him at his word, you would believe in me because you would recognize that I am the very one who brings the salvation that Moses predicted. See, the law that Jesus is talking about here was good. It was given by God to his people. The law was not bad. It was good. But the problem with the law is that it could not heal. It could not save. The whole point of the law was to point people to the Messiah, the one who could. The law pointed out sin. It pointed out inability. It pointed out sickness in people so that they would turn to the Messiah. The law in and of itself was not a lasting remedy for sin. And so the law points to Jesus, but since they reject Jesus, they not only reject Moses, but now Moses accuses them and they stand accused in this courtroom. But we are spectators. We're sitting in the gallery and we're watching as these religious leaders are accused for their sin. And in the same way that they are on trial, we are on trial. And we stand accused by the very same witnesses that accuse them because these witnesses reveal our sin to us. But the good news of the gospel is that we can be declared not guilty because there is one who was, con- uh, who was accused and condemned in our place, and his name is Jesus Jesus. Jesus became accused. He willingly took the death penalty on the cross, and it's with his blood that our records are expunged, and we are freed from the shackles of sin. This is the good news that leads us into our time of communion this morning. And so if you would, grab your communion elements. See, because it's these elements that represent the good news of the gospel, that it is Christ's body that was freely given for us and his blood that was shed for us that not only expunges our records of sin and makes us clean, but it is the way that we are united with him and can experience life in his name. And so this morning, as we open up our elements, the the bread represents Christ's body that was freely given for us. At this time, you can take and eat. And the cup, the cup represents the blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross to cleanse us of our sin. Take and drink. Let's close in prayer.